God, thou art holy, righteous, transcendent, and other. But we are vile, wretched, miserable, and blind. Regarding our sins, our lips are ready to confess. But our hearts are slow to admit. Unmask our sin and grant us the gift of repentance. We bring our souls to you. Break them, wound them, bend them, mold them, and then apply the gospel balm to them. May we leave saying, we have met with you in the book. God our Father, perhaps our text today is not the most memorable verses, but they are your words to us. Make these words sweet to us, even if they correct us. Holy Spirit, our teacher, come and shine upon the printed page. Jesus, our Savior, you came down to raise us up. You were born like us that we might become like you. Our sins are drowning in the ocean of your mercy. Holy Trinity, three and one, and one in three, we came to feast. We came to swim. Feed us now with your word and drown us now in your grace. As we have been praying individually for the last five minutes, we pray now corporately. Speak, O Lord, to reveal yourself. To infuse your children with a proper view of your holiness. Speak, O oh Lord, to reveal our sin. To show us how we don't measure up to your perfect standard. Speak, O oh Lord, to reveal the Savior. To put on display the beauty of Christ's sacrifice in our place. Speak, O oh Lord, and give us undistracted minds so we can hear when you do. This is our corporate plea. Amen. They are paraded across the pages one by one. It's a parade of kings. At times, it reads like a thrilling mystery novel. There's international intrigue, a series of conspiracies and assassinations. There's war heroes and war zeros. There's a coup, a few of them. A siege on a town and a house burning down. Oh, and someone is in it. So at times, this reads like a thrilling mystery novel. Then at times... It reads like a boring court narrative. The biographical entries of the kings are brief and repetitive. He rose, he reigned, he sinned, he died, rinse and repeat. One commentator said, this is a school child's nightmare. <laughs> the kind of chronicle that evokes a lifelong loathing of history. It's full of meaningless and confusing dates for indistinguishable kings, all told in a colorless and repetitive prose. Too much history, we sigh. The palace archives, what drudgery. It's a maze of detail. I'm going to do my absolute best to prevent your cranial fatigue. I don't want you to leave with fogged minds. I want you to leave with inflamed hearts. It all centers around this strip of land in the Middle East. One historian, our historian, who relays the information, switches back and forth between two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. He recounts the history of the two kingdoms simultaneously, like during March Madness, how the network flips back and forth between games. So does our narrator. This is a succession narrative, but it's spicy. It's got some kick to it. A parade of kings, two kings, 
two southern kings from Judah, that's chapter 15, verses 1 through 24, five northern kings from Israel, that's chapter 15, verse 25, through chapter 16, verse 34. Two southern kings from Judah, five northern kings from Israel. Each king will be described, each king will be evaluated, each king will be warned. Each king will be described. The historian follows a consistent pattern in describing these kings. It's sort of like a Wikipedia page. Each entered the same way, a series of biographical information, years they reigned, uh, who was reigning on the other side. The formulaic presentation begins with chronological facts. The stylized formula is copied and pasted and filled in with the new king. It's a standard blueprint. Each king will be evaluated. The historian will make a theological assessment of the various reigns. It's a theological commentary on each king's rule. The kings of Judah are usually measured in terms of if they have been like David or not. The kings of Israel are usually measured in terms of if they have been like Jeroboam. Now, a little heads up. There will eventually be 20 kings in Israel. They will all get a thumbs down. There will eventually be 20 kings in Judah, and 12 will get a thumbs down, and 8 will get a thumbs up. Each king will be described. Each king will be evaluated. Each king will be warned. Sin leads to short-term and long-term tragedy in their lives and in yours. May God use the text to protect us from every soul-destroying compromise. It's like the kings are saying, well, I've been doing this for, doing this sin for quite a while and nothing has happened. It must be okay. Don't confuse God's patience with his acceptance. A parade of kings, two southern kings, five northern kings, then a parade of truths from the parade of kings, seven applications. As we go through the text, I will give you applicational truths. It will be a parade of truths from the parade of kings. I'll drip them throughout the narrative instead of saving them all for the end. We begin in verse 1. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, Abijam began to reign over Judah. Let's pause there. Abijam is spelled Abijah in the Chronicles parallel. Same person, two spellings. You may think he is in Jeroboam's line since it mentions Jerry, but he isn't. This is formulaic. It always compares each king to the king on the other side. Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. Then the kingdom split. It is now a divided kingdom. It went from one crown to two. Jeroboam took the northern kingdom, Israel. Rehoboam took the southern kingdom, Judah. Last week, we watched these two as their crowns crumbled. Who will follow them? We will discover in our text. Verse 2. Abijam reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah the daughter of Abushalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. His father was Rehoboam. His grandfather was Solomon. His great-grandfather was David. Hebrew often refers to the grandfather or great-grandfather as father. This boy may have David's blood running through his veins, but he does not have David's heart pumping in his chest. Sadly, he lacked any, dev any devotion and fidelity to God. Verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. God gave a lamp, a son to follow David. 
The lamp speaks of, of David's dynasty not burning out. The flame still burns. The promise still continues. The light of God's 2 Samuel 7 promise will not be extinguished. After viewing Rehoboam's sin and now Abijam's sin, you might ask, so why is there still a kingdom in Judah at all? The lamp of David continues to shine because it has to. Jesus Christ is coming from that line, that dynasty. If it dies, salvation dies. This begins to make sense when we read Revelation 21, 23 and discover that the lamp is the lamb. The lamp will burn until Jesus Christ takes the throne and then it will become an eternal flame. He steps on the scene and says, I'm the light of the world. God's grace is the only reason why David's kingdom continues at all. God's grace is the only reason Abijam holds a lamp. God keeps his promise even when his descendants do not. The lamp is secure. Sin cannot blow it out. The lamp at times will be flickering and may be fading, but it will never be extinguished. If Abijam is not holding that lamp, Mary would never hold that infant. If Abijam is not holding that lamp, God is not holding on to your salvation. If there is no flame in Abijam's lamp, then you will be eternally in the flames. Thank God that David's blood and lamp continues through Abijam, even when David's heart does not. The lamp of God. This line that Abijam carries is necessary for your salvation. Without this three-year reign, you never receive the gospel. If for three years the lamp ceased to shine, God's promises fail and Jesus never comes. This lamp burns not because David is sinless. He had some spectacular blemishes. He certainly wasn't flawless. Look at, look at verse 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. The lamp burns not because David was sinless but because God was faithful. He gave a promise to the unfaithful. I'm going to send a Messiah through this line. Non-Christian, God has been planning this Jesus dying for the sins of his people for a long time. A lot of things had to flow just perfectly for it to happen. You need to see the detail of the work of God and fall on your knees and submit to Christ as Lord. A parade of truths from the parade of kings. The first truth, the promise of God stabilizes the southern kingdom. The promise of God stabilizes the southern kingdom. God protected them from the disintegration that the north would face. Long periods of stability in the south compared to long periods of instability in the north. I'm not saying it was honorable, but it, it certainly was more stable. The southern kings are not being assassinated like the northern kings. There is coup after coup in the north. There are nine different dynasties in the north, only one in the south, David's dynasty. Judah knows some semblance of political stability. During the, the rise and the fall of kings, where is the promise? Not in fragile human hands, but in God's hands. Verse 7. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. The book of Chronicles, the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah mentioned here, has disappeared. It was not an inspired book. It was a history book. Maybe a good one. 
Perhaps it will be discovered one day like the Dead Sea Scrolls were. If some shepherd boy finds them, good. But they still will not be inspired. See, there is man's history and then there is God's history. We do not have all of man's history on Abijam. But we do have all of God's history on Abijam. Take note that just because Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom and just because they both put on crowns at the same time, it doesn't mean that they ended at the same time. Just because they started at the same time doesn't mean they ended at the same time. Ray only reigned for 17 years. Jerry reigned for 22 years. Jerry wore his crown five years longer than Ray. So all of Abijah's reign, three years, he fought against Jeroboam. Abijah, the king who possessed David's blood and lamp, but not David's heart. Abijah, the king who possessed David's blood and lamp, but not David's heart. Verse 8. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. Abijah reigned three years. Asa will reign 41 years. You would expect an ungodly father to produce an ungodly son. That does happen most often. But then there is grace. There is mercy. Ungodly Abijam produces godly Asa. Verse 9. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. Jerry's reign will only last two more years once Asa takes the throne. Asa is a breath of fresh air. He obeyed God in ways his father and grandfather did not. He brought a reformation. One bad king giving birth to another bad king. When will the cycle be broken? It will break with Asa. It's smog, 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 then clean, crisp air. He will not produce the smog of arrogance, immorality, idolatry, or blasphemy like his father and grandfather. No, he will clean the air. Verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father, had done. Again, father referring to his great-great-grandfather, David. Asa initiated religious reforms against idolatry. He shunned immorality. He's breaking the cycle of wickedness. Verse 12. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land. And removed all the idols that his father had made. His father, Abijam, and grandfather, Rehoboam, set up these idols. Asa tore them down. Tearing down his dad's creations. Now it's getting personal. He's getting rid of the family heirlooms. Hey, your, your grandfather made that with his own hands. Asa responds, well, my hands will not take part in the sins of my grandfather's hands. He cleaned house. He's taking an axe to idols, the chainsaw to pagan altars. The narrator gives us a very clean description to describe the radical nature of what took place. Verse 13. He also removed Maaka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah, and Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Here's another place where mother is a stretchable term. Most scholars believe this to be his grandmother. His, her continued presence testifies of her strong personality. Hey, Granny, I'm coming over to crush some idols. Now, this is not a, this is, this, this granny is not a nice granny with milk and cookies saying shug every other word. This granny is evil. She is a perverted granny. People can be perverted in their old age. This granny was a sexually deviant idolater. Asa de 
deposes of the queen mother. Granny, you aren't going to sit on the queen's seat anymore. I am not going to let you continue in this sin just because you used to change my diapers. Asa did not allow family ties to force him to ignore the repulsive worship. Here I stand against my grandmother. See, a thousand years later, Jesus would say, remaining faithful to God will split some families. He said, if you follow me, you must leave mother and father and grandmother. A parade of truths from the parade of kings, the second truth, you cannot let family or friends get in the way of your commitment to Jesus Christ. You cannot let family or friends get in the way of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Just personally here, I had no idea what ramifications were in store for me when I trusted Christ at age 16. The separation it would require from brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents. Very quickly, I understood I was to take up my cross and follow Christ. Asa told Granny, I'm taking a sledgehammer to your vulgar Canaanite sex goddess and then I will take the broken pieces, I will cross the brook Kidron and I will burn them. The Hebrew word to describe this idolatrous image could be translated obscene. It was graphically perverted. It caused Asa to shudder with shock. On demo day, a lot of people watched Asa tear his grandmother's idols down. It was a very public act. Spectators everywhere. All the artists... And, and, and the National Museum of Protecting Art in Israel were picketing. Don't destroy our, our freedom of expression. It's just art. Asa says, no, it's pornographic and it's idolatry. Asa loved God more than grandma. Hopefully that choice will not have to be made for you. But if it does, always choose Yahweh. A parade of truths from the parade of kings. Third truth. Do not excuse your personal sin by blaming your parents' poor example. Do not excuse your personal sin by blaming your parents' poor example. You know, Asa could have continued in the sins of his parents. He, could, he, he grew up in it. He was surrounded by it. I do this because my parents did this. I act this way because I got it from my mama. That's blame shifting. That's what Adam did. You are not stuck in your behavior doomed to repeat the sins of your parents. You are not crippled by the past. And if a therapist tells you that you are, they don't understand the power of the gospel. Asa's character, his spiritual walk, his commitment was not molded by his family. One pastor said, if you are struggling with the fact that your home life growing up wasn't godly, you feel that you're missing some ingredients that certainly God would require of you, he says, realize God is not handicapped by your parental heritage. Your parents were not a surprise to God and they did not overwrite his plans for your life. God is more powerful than your past and he has a future for you. Look at verse 14, please. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. There were still some high places. Otherwise, Asa was exemplary in his religious policy. The author gives us the true picture. He says, granted, there were some limitations to Asa's reform. He wasn't perfect. 
but the general pattern of his life was that he eschewed idolatry. His reform was not as complete as it should have been. He stopped short of total cleansing. And you know, I can identify with Asa because sometimes I reform and then I sin. I take a strong stand and then I fail to take a stand in a much smaller area. Church, this is why you must never idolize reformers. Whether they are Asa or Calvin or Luther or Zwingli. If your hope was in the one who crossed the brook Kidron on the way to burn an idol, you will be devastated. He reformed, but he was not sinless. You should place your hope in the one who crossed that same brook Kidron to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't merely a reformer. He was a savior and a sinless one. Two kings of Judah, Abijam, the king who possessed David's blood and lamp, but not David's heart. Asa, the reformer who reformed the air and land, but not his entire heart. The narrator chose to reveal one war campaign during Asa's tenure as king. Now, he could have chosen many different ones, but he settles on this one. Why? I, I call this, we three kings. There are three kings in this war. Asa leading Judah, and then Basha, we haven't been introduced to him yet, but he will appear over on the other side. He's one of Israel's kings. During the reign of of, of King Asa and Judah, several kings came and went in the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, five or six. So Asa and Basha are fighting like all the kings have been doing, unceasing hostilities. But, but Basha decides to get help from outside the land, and he made a deal with a third king, Ben-Hadad, king of Damascus. King Basha built blockades, preventing goods and supplies from making it to Judah in the south. He shut down the flow of supplies. No weapons, no gold, fruit, building materials. Asa thinks, I'm going to try to do a backdoor deal with the third king myself. I'm going to give him all the treasures in the temple and ask him to break his deal, his treaty, his covenant with King Basha and make a new one with me. Hey, let's, let's make a deal. Let, let me buy you out. And that's what he did. He bribed the king of Damascus. Now, the parallel passage in Chronicles reveals he did not consult the Lord in this. He acted without praying. The third king, Ben-Hadad, the king of Damascus, agreed. And in verse 20, And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel-Beth-Meacah, and all Kinnereth and all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Terza. King Basha stopped construction because you don't build things during wartime. It had the desired effect. The flow of goods and services again made its way to Judah. Then Asa pilfered all the building materials, logs, stones, sheetrock, nails, all that. Verse 23. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Woodhouse calls Asa the better king who was not good enough. Ellsworth says of Asa, it was a powerful reign and a pitiful end. We know from parallel passages in Chronicles, this foot disease was a result of his sin and not consulting the Lord. Is this athlete's foot? Is it severe gout? Or an obstructive vascular disease with ensuing gangrene? Either way, we find out he has feet of clay. He is not perfect. Abijam reigns three years. Asa reigns 41 years. The narrator then pivots 
He talks about the southern kings of Judah, then transitions and he says, Meanwhile, back in Israel, more time was spent on the two kings of Judah. The pace quickens considerably as we go through the five kings of Israel. In the north, each king becomes more wicked than his successor. From here on out, five kings and three coups. A parade of kings. Two southern kings, five northern kings. The first northern king, verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. And in his sin, which he had made Israel to sin. He openly eviled before God. Like father, like son. He went headlong into idolatry. He continues his father's policy of war with Judah. He's an apple that doesn't fall far from the tree. He's Jerry Jr., a chip off the old block. Jeroboam and his son Nadab, same, same, chip off the old block. Here's the scene. Two years into his reign, the king is in a foxhole with his men. They are trying to take a town, Gibbethon, from the Philistines. The town that used to belong to Dan, but it was captured. Nadab plans to capture G-Town back. The only problem, while in the foxhole, there's an assassin. Basha slits the king's throat. This is the first of three violent coups in the north. This should show you the kind of people we are dealing with. The kings in the north are cutthroat. It's lawless over there. No loyalty anywhere. Verse 29. And as soon as Basha was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Now, Basha wiped out all of Jeroboam's descendants. Not a living soul left in his family. He's thoroughly ruthless. Not one left breathing. He carries out a blood purge. He's doing it to remove any potential claimants to the throne. But, but God ordained this would happen last week in chapter 14. I don't think Basha knows about the prophecy concerning Jeroboam's family. He's simply launching a bloody massacre on a potential rivals. God used this evil man to accomplish his purpose. However, Basha's violent act does not remove his personal responsibility. And now we switch back to Nadab, verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. And in the third year of, of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah. And he reigned 24 years. Now is the, you know, the third mention of this missing book. Someone find the book, please. The historian is synchronizing Basha's reign to his counterpart in Judah. Nadab reigned two years. Basha will reign 24 years. Nadab, chip off the old block. Basha, chop off the old head. Now, we are already in a second dynasty. Jeroboam's family, that was one dynasty. We are now in a second, verse 1 of the next chapter, 16. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust... And made you leader over my people Israel. And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam. And have made my people Israel to sin. Provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold. I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam. The son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha. Does this sound familiar? Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city. The dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. God sent a prophet 
We call this book Kings for good reason. But there's also a lot of prophets in here. Prophets call on kings to account for their actions. Prophets are proof that God has not abdicated his role as Lord of history. God looks at the ruler and says, you are accountable to me. Politicians forget this sometimes. They think they're accountable to their party or to the voters. No, you are accountable to God. So, new ruler, same worship. New dynasty, same idolatry. Basha, you live like Jerry, then you will die like Jerry. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Dust he was and dust he became, swept away by the judgment of God. Verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel and Terza, and he reigned two years. All right, let's catch up. Things happen quickly in the north. The reigns, Nadab, two years. Basha, 24 years. Elah, two years. We find out more about Elah in verse 9. But Elah's servant Zimri commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terza, what's he doing there? Drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terza, Zimri, there's a lot of Z's here, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Now this is Israel's second assassination. King Elah did not die on the field of battle, giving blood for his country. He was murdered, not on a battlefield, but in a living room. The assassin this time was Zimri. At least Nadab was assassinated during a military campaign and not during a drinking session. There are war heroes and there are war zeros. Elah was a war zero. And I think he died in a recliner with beer bottles all around him. Five northern kings from Israel, Nadab, chip off the old block, Basha, chop off the old head, Elah, twist off the old cap. He's getting hammered, which made him vulnerable. We're not sure how Zimri killed him, maybe a sword to the chest. Zimri begins to reign. Verse 11. When Zimri began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he's getting busy right away, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Zimri annihilates the predecessor's whole family. He killed everyone connected with Basha like an exterminator gets every last roach. No kinsfolk left. This has become a predictable pattern of brutality. Evil is so predictable. It's so predictable, it becomes boring. Dale Ralph Davis says, evil carries a tedious yawn. After a while, sin loses its creativity. It's the monotony of idolatry. We are officially in the fourth dynasty already in the north. Still the same dynasty in the south. God is protecting that one. The lamp of David is over there. There are no lamps in the north. The first dynasty, house of Jeroboam and his son. The second dynasty, house of Basha and his son. The third dynasty, house of Elah. The fourth dynasty, house of Zimri. Verse 12. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. We just read that. For all the sins of Basha and all the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not, where are they, of course, where are they? they are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And in the flow of the story, the next thing we know, 
we're back in, in the foxhole outside of G-Town. Israel, years later, is still trying to take this city from the Philistines. 26 years have passed. Same foxhole, same city. They really want to capture this city back from the Philistines. Let's go to verse 15. In the 20th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, someone in the foxhole with them, king over Israel that day in the camp. News of, of Zimri's treachery didn't sit well with the army. I mean, come on, Zimri. You don't carry on a coup without the army's support. He may have been crafty enough to plot an assassination, but not crafty enough to gain the support of the military. The army says, if King Basha is dead, we say long live King Omri. Verse 17. So Omri went up from Gibbethon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terza. They march and lay siege on the capital. One good coup deserves another. Verse 18. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire, and he died. <laughs> Seeing there's no way to escape, he's holed up in the palace. He lit the house on fire with him in it. He took his own life. He committed suicide by torching the royal palace, the White House of his day. He, he managed to lose the lead in the polls and commit suicide to deal with it. Zimri's temporary tenure only lasted seven days. Only one week, making his the shortest reign of all the kings of ancient Israel. What did Zimri do in that week? He was not only a drinking king, he was a working king. He killed everyone, eliminated an entire family line. He barely got the blood from out beneath his fingernails before he lost the popular support and killed himself. Five northern kings from Israel, Nadab, chip off the old block, Basha, chop off the old head, Elah, twist off the old cap, Zimri, light up the old mansion. He died by self-inflicted arson. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginneth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginneth. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. Apparently, Om Omri fights off the challenger and rules over Israel unopposed. We have every reason to believe that Omri helped Tibni die. Maybe a little earlier than expected. Maybe he spiked his punch with poison. We're not specifically told. Omri's side ended up stronger, and he reigned for 12 years. He was a vigorous and skilled leader. His administrative and, and military skills were unmatched. After years of upheaval, Omri stabilized the turbulent, turbulent political climate. He was so successful that foreign documents called Israel the land of Omri more than a century 150 years after his death. He changed the capital city to Samaria, built a new royal palace there. He has a, he's a huge national success. From a worldly perspective, he was a great king. But God remains unimpressed. History says more about him than the Bible. Yahweh was not impressed by Omri's success. He was bigger in man's history books than God's history book. A parade of truths from the parade of kings, fourth truth. Your ability to build things doesn't impress God. You can build a legacy while ignoring God.
Your ability to build things doesn't impress God. You can build a legacy while ignoring God. Our narrator is not concerned with Omri's success, only his sin. Omri was the most successful king in Israel, but he is no more significant in God's eyes than any of his predecessors. He expanded the territory. Israel became richer under his reign. All that is ignored. The historian is not saying he is ignorant of Omri's achievements. He's saying they don't matter. One Bible commentator asked this question. Do the passions that drive your living and doing only elicit a yawn from heaven? Do you have an entrepreneurial spirit? Things you touch experience advancement, growth, expansion. Friend, what will mark you for all eternity is not your public achievements, but your private devotion to God. Men will talk about your accomplishments, but God in heaven will not even value them. 100 years from now, the only thing that will matter is did you walk with God? Accomplishments don't matter. Fidelity does. Some of your accomplishments will wither to nothing. We are given an epitaph for each of the seven kings in our text. Imagine your epitaph reading, He walked in the sins of his father, and his heart was not wholly given to God. Oh, he climbed the military ranks. He, he reached an E9. He, he reached a three-star general. She had the nicest clothes. She had a lot of followers. They had a huge house. They had a big retirement, a beach house. He, he was published. They traveled a lot. They traveled the world. God will write your epitaph. And it will not matter what nations you conquered or what buildings you constructed. It will only matter if you walked with God. God comments on the heart of the kings, not the accomplishment of the kings. Leave a legacy of faith, not a legacy of mere human accomplishments. Verse 25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And did more evil than all who were before him. Now I must pause and comment on this. He sinks to new levels. This is the harshest criticism given to any king so far. Verse 26. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And in the sins that he had made Israel to sin. Provoking the Lord the God of Israel to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did. And the might that he showed. Oh, you don't even have to tell me, narrator. I know where they are. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? It's crazy to think that in the end, God could call your accomplishments idols. Nadab, chip off the old block. Basha, chop off the old head. Elah, twist off the old cap. Zimri, light up the old mansion. Omri, build up the old kingdom. Verse 28, and Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. There should, there should be some background music when we say the name Ahab. Ahab will reign for 22 years. The northern kings just keep getting worse until we arrive at the epitome of evil, Ahab. This guy is atrocious. Omri and his terrible son Ahab formed the fifth dynasty in the north. First dynasty, Jeroboam and his son. Second dynasty, house of Basha and his son. Third dynasty, house of Elah. Fourth dynasty, house of Zimri. Fifth dynasty, house of Omri and his son Ahab. Five violent changes of dynasty in 50 years. They still got another 150 years to go. Verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. <laughs> He's now the new champion of evil. 
What a sober evaluation of his, of his infamous career. Omri had the award for being the most despicable, but Ahab ripped the award away from his father and put the gold medal around his own neck. Anything dad can do, I can do better. Excessive evil marked this man. We will learn a lot more about this Ahab later, so I'm not going to camp out on him this week. He was evil, and he had a wife just as evil. You know, you find who you are. You marry who you are. Ahab sure did. Verse 31. And as, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Bel and worshipped him. Interesting. Ancient Near East parents included their favorite god in the name of their children. Jezebel means princess of Bel. Only 60 years after David, and this is the nation's queen? King Ahab gave state support to the worship of Baal. Verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He made God angrier than all the previous kings put together. He has a lot of unauthorized building projects going on under his reign. The chapter ends talking about Jericho. He allowed Jericho to be rebuilt. That was strictly forbidden in God's word. God said 500 years before, if you rebuild this city, the GC's oldest son will die when the foundation is laid and his younger son will die when the gates are set up. And that's exactly what happened. God's word is mocked with all these building projects. Five northern kings from Israel. Nadab, chip off the old block. Basha, chop off the old head. Elah, twist off the old cap. Zimri, light up the old mansion. Omri, build up the old kingdom. Ahab, raise up some new altars and rebuild an old city. Abominable building projects. A parable of truths, a parade of truths from the parade of kings. Here's the fifth truth. Kings is a carefully compiled history. However, it is not a blow-by-blow -blow history. You need to understand that. Kings is a, is a carefully compiled history. However, it is not a blow-by-blow -blow history. It is not concerned with a strict reporting of facts. Rather, it's a theological perspective on history. The narrator is not an analyst. He, he's not giving equal attention to every time period or king. In 1 Kings, Solomon receives 11 chapters, while the next dozen kings, north and south, are fairly rapidly dismissed in the next five chapters. Our narrator skims over the surface of several decades. The author will trace the history of God's people during the period of around 100 B.C. to 600 B.C. That's 400 years covered in a little more than 50,000 words. That means a drastic reduction of material. He has the ability your pastor does not. He can reduce material. Now, he could have said a lot more. The history of the United States is half that long and written in huge books, not little booklets like First and Second Kings. The intent of the author is not to provide us with an exhaustive history. He wants you to see certain things so he will emit details on purpose. He employs a, a selective nature of accounting. He gives little vignettes. But his chief interests are not the facts of history, but rather the movements of history. Provan provides a helpful reminder. Never confuse, he says, never confuse God's long-term planning with his inability or unwillingness to communicate and act in human history. He's playing out a redemptive story. A parade of truths from the parade of kings. The sixth truth. Christians look at history through a specific set of lenses. We see God ruling. 
Christians look at history through a specific set of lenses. We see God ruling history. We look at the events of history and the figures of history differently. We can zoom out. We can look at all of it from a biblical worldview. I want to emphasize the author's theological approach to history. We are viewing history being written right now just like we view history that has already been written. As wicked and diabolical as our leaders are, you will not find one shred of evidence that Christians are supposed to stop everything and panic. God never retreats. He never suffers a setback. He never wrings his hands. His palms are never sweaty. He never gets anxious when one king leaves and another takes his throne. Beloved, will you study God's history and then refuse to learn from it? As the years roll by, national leaders come and go. And they commit evil after evil. When you see great movements of evil in the world, you must put power politics into proper perspectives. Our text says at least seven times one of two things. In the sight of the Lord or before the eyes of the Lord. Church, hear me. God is watching. Nothing is going to escape his vision. God sees and assesses our time. In our text, God has given us a relentless catalog of human stupidity. After all of this, are you still going to allow your hopes and dreams to rest in a politician? 1 Kings as a book is usually disinterested in the wider political impact of the kings. It's mainly God's redemptive history than politics on the side. Let me ask you a question. Do you view the world like it's mainly politics and then Christianity on the side? Lightheart says, and I quote, Elections and coups don't ultimately make the difference. God does. The Bible reveals to us not just what happens in history, but what happens behind history. This text should change the way you process elections and assassinations. Speak like God rules in the arena of history. Those of you that are non-Christians, you may receive your identity from who leads the nation. We do not. You may get all freaked out. We will not. God's control of the nations steadies us. Now the seventh and final truth. Every king in our passage ruled before the eyes of the Lord. Although one was good, none were perfect. Every king in our passage ruled before the eyes of the Lord. Although one was good, none were perfect. Six bad kings and one good king. No perfect kings. That is until the true seventh king comes. The Christ King, the perfect King. His epitaph read, sinless. And then it was adjusted three days later, risen from the dead. This text only deals with one nation, but it points to all nations because Christ will be the King of all nations. This text only deals with one strip of land in the Middle East. But it points to a Christ who, who will rule every strip of land on planet earth. Let's stand together. Father, we rejoice in Jesus Christ, our King. Who rules and reigns 
even now. And who will remake the garden and rule and reign while we bow before his feet for all eternity. We love you, Father. Not because we have never strayed, but because he has never strayed. And he's faithful. Amen.